Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's White House visit by India's controversial Prime Minister Modi, who was banned from entering the United States in 2005 for stoking sectarian violence, and since he became Prime Minister in 2014, has cracked down on the press, not had any press conferences, jailed his opponents, and expelled the opposition leader from Parliament while having the much ballyhooed world's largest democracy downgraded as a, quote, flawed democracy, a partially free democracy, and an electoral autocracy. Joining us is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security, and we will discuss his latest article at Foreign Affairs, The Folly of India's Neutrality. In the face of Chinese aggression, New Delhi must align with Washington. Then we'll look into the extent that the Supreme Court has been captured by the plutocracy, with Justices Thomas and Alito slavishly serving the interests of their billionaire buddies instead of taking care of equal justice under the law. Joining us is Leah Lippmann, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Then finally, we'll look into surprising and encouraging findings from a new study on homelessness that finds addiction and mental health problems are not the cause of homelessness, but that the main reason the vast majority of Californians become homeless is a loss of income, and that as little as a $300 a month subsidy would stop them falling onto the streets. Joining us is Dr. Margot Cushell, who is a professor of medicine and division chief at the Division of Vulnerable Populations at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, and director of the University of California Center for Vulnerable Populations and University of California San Francisco Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. She is a principal author of their new report, The California Statewide Study of People Experiencing Homelessness. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Civilizations and Cultures at the University of Indiana. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. 
and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Folly of India's Neutrality. In the face of Chinese aggression, New Delhi must align with Washington. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sumit Ganguly. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Sumit. And it's a pretty heavy lift, isn't it, for uh, India to abandon its non-aligned policy, which began, of course, uh, they led the non-aligned movement during the Cold War and in uh, in an address to the Indian Parliament in March of 1951, Prime Minister Nehru said that, quote, by aligning ourselves with any one power, you surrender your opinion, give up the policy you would normally pursue because somebody else wants you to pursue another policy. And then, of course, in uh, 1956, the U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles proclaimed that neutrality was an obsolete conception, immoral and short-sighted. And, of course, that compounding, deteriorating relations between the United States and India, the United States entered an alliance with Pakistan in 1954. It sided with the Pakistani military in the civil war that gave birth to Bangladesh in 1971. And then when Prime Minister Indira Gandhi signed the Treaty of Peace, Friendship and Cooperation with the USSR in 1971, relations got even worse as... India tilted towards the Soviet Union and the United States tilted towards Pakistan. So that's just a sketch of the history, Sumit. So why do you think it's possible for India to abandon its non-aligned neutrality and, in a sense, become an ally of the United States? Well, I don't think India is about to become an ally of the United States. Uh, The Indians uh, still seem... Uh, rather obsessed with this notion of what they refer to as uh, strategic autonomy, which is sort of the latest incarnation of the concept of non-alignment. The notion that they should be able uh, to make uh, decisions independent of any other country and uh, make uh, choices on particular issues Um, without uh, uh, being beholden uh, to anyone else. Um, But of course, this is a historical anomaly, uh, or actually it involves a bit of historical amnesia, because between 1971 and uh, till the collapse of the Soviet Union around 1990, India's foreign policy was significantly constrained because of its relationship with the Soviet Union. It was not a Soviet ally, but it was certainly dependent on the Soviet Union. Despite that history, the Indians keep insisting on this idea of strategic autonomy and seem loath to align itself in any fashion um, with the United States. Because, as you recounted, there is this history that still hovers over the Indians from the Cold War era. So what then do you think was discussed in the White House today between Prime Minister Modi and Biden? Obviously, they've had a press conference and there's a big state dinner tonight and the red carpet is being rolled out and with a lot of pomp and ceremony on Wednesday. Prime Minister Modi did yoga day at the UN. I'm not sure what that was about. But it does seem that the United States seems to be courting India. Would you, would you agree? 
Oh, absolutely. The U.S. is courting India and it is courting India because it sees India as a potential strategic bulwark against the aggressiveness of the People's Republic of China. And the Biden administration also understands that India has its very real fears about the PRC and particularly along the Himalayan border. What will be interesting is if um, uh, either side dips its hat in terms of how they might jointly work towards the PRC. Uh, Though I really doubt that this will come out in the public domain, even if they reach some kind of an accord on how best to contend with the PRC, I think they will refrain from making a public statement about it, uh, particularly because India is acutely fearful of provoking or peaking the PRC any further. Well, it is a bit strange, is it not, Sumit, that the very politician who was banned from entering the United States in 2005 because of his role as the head of the state of Gujarat, where there was a pogrom against uh, Muslims and anti-Muslim riots left hundreds dead. But then, of course, when he became prime minister in 2014, things changed. But there's still a residue of distrust and dislike for Modi. 70 congressional Democrats wrote Biden a letter urging him to bring up human rights abuses with Modi. Do you think there was any way that that was discussed? I would I would hope that it was discussed, or at least, um, you know, um, ever so gently um, uh, brought up uh, with Modi, because this is an issue that is not going to go away any time in the foreseeable future. And um, uh, there is a steady of... Uh, uh, process of democratic backsliding in India. There have been significant constraints placed on Indian civil society. Um, uh, the press, to a large degree, has been muzzled in India. Um, there is considerable hostility, as you correctly underscored, against Muslims in India. Uh, and uh, these are matters that f- friends should be able to talk about with some small degree of candor, because one cannot in the United States keep talking about a foreign policy which is based upon values and the support for global democracy, and at the same time remain studiously silent about where India is headed. Well, having the former leader of the opposition party, Rahul Gandhi, who is, of course, the heir to India's founding political dynasty, He was sentenced to two years in prison for disparaging the name of Modi. I mean, that's the sort of tactic that despots use, like Erdogan in Turkey, you know, where the law's against insulting him. And he was able to get rid of the main uh, political rival to prevent him from running in the recent elections by using this law. And it's exactly what Modi's doing in India. And as a result of Modi's essentially banning him. He was expelled from Parliament, taking him out of politics, and he's currently appealing the sentence. So that's pretty brazen, isn't it? I think that is downright brazen, and it is indeed 
reminiscent of uh, a host of other um, squalid um, uh, dictatorial regimes who resort to these kinds of tactics. Um, uh, admittedly, Rahul Gandhi's statement um, was maladroit, but maladroit statements should not be punishable under the law. Basically, what Modi or his supporters did was to fall back on a colonial era law uh, involving defamation, which is a very broad definition of what constitutes defamation, and thereby found a lower court found Rahul Gandhi guilty of defamation. And of course, like any other um, uh, Indian citizen, he has a right to appeal, and he has appealed to a higher court, and we will see what the outcome is, uh, whether or not the charges against him are dismissed. But it is worth underscoring that the judge who did uh, hear the case gave him the maximum penalty of two years. And if you are convicted of a criminal offense um, and punished uh, uh, um, up to two years, in um, uh, given a two-year sentence, um, you have to be automatically disqualified from parliament. So one wonders why the judge did not use his discretion and make it for a year and a half or a year's worth of punishment, but chose the maximum possible uh, punishment. Well, clearly this is something that's bothering the Indian government because India likes to say that it's the world's largest democracy and apparently behind the scenes, uh, Modi's people have been trying to smooth over the democratic backsliding because the democracy index prepared by the Economic Intelligence uh, Unit has now downgraded uh, India to a flawed democracy and Freedom House has downgraded India's status to a partially free democracy and the VDEM Institute based in Sweden classifies India as an electoral autocracy. So do you think this is getting to Modi, the international censure? Um, uh, I, I, the, the way the government has lashed out at these um, uh, assessments or evaluations of India's democracy um, suggests that this, this has indeed uh, gotten under his skin and that of his closest associates. Otherwise, they would have maintained the studious silence on the subject and uh, uh, ignored um, uh, these assessments. Uh, but the mere fact that they have spoken out with such vigor uh, and such anger uh, and chagrin and expressed such chagrin over these um, assessments uh, that my suspicion is uh, that they have indeed stunned. So let's talk about the current uh, situation vis-a-vis U.S.-India relations, and obviously with the war in Ukraine and the U.S. being the main supporter, along with NATO, of Ukraine, the U.S. is clearly a little annoyed with India because of its sitting on the fence and more than sitting on the fence, it seems to have very deep ties with Russia, as we discussed, going back to Indira Gandhi in 1971, throughout the Cold War. But Modi's only offered very, very mild criticism of Putin, and India's sort of taking advantage of the situation 
to purchase as much cut-rate Russian oil as they can. Their purchases of Russian oil have increased tenfold in 2022, and more so now. So, again, how much is that affecting this situation? In other words, what you're arguing in your article at Foreign Affairs, the folly of India's neutrality, uh, Sumit Ganguly, is that India essentially has to eventually wake up and make a choice between facing up to the threat from China and the fact that Russia and China are more and more aligned and really realizing that it's the best bet is some kind of, not necessarily an alliance, but some kind of alignment with the United States. Um, that is exactly right. The Biden administration for the moment has set aside its peak over India's continued uh, dalliance uh, with Russia and its reliance on Russian oil, which it is refining and selling to Europe. Um, uh, the Biden administration is, for the most part, uh, after expressing some discontent, has soft-pedaled uh, this issue in the interests of bolstering uh, the relationship with India. But what India needs to realize, as Dinshaw Mistry, my co-author, and I argued in the Foreign Affairs article, um, that um, India cannot expect indefinite American goodwill, that American strategic patience is not infinite. At some point, the United States is going to say this relationship is not the flame is not worth the candle. And consequently, uh, we need to uh, seek other possible uh, uh, partners in Asia. And, you know, while we will maintain a working relationship with India, we're simply not going to count on India to really step up to the plate. Uh, I think uh, India, I think, thinks um, that it can indefinitely uh, play this game of working with multiple powers um, and not making any commitments to any one great power. Um, and it, it thinks it can quite deftly um, uh, play this game indefinitely. But I don't think this terribly transactional approach is going to work. So in the last few minutes then, Sumit, uh, what is the Quad all about? This strategic arrangement that seems fairly amorphous, but they've had some meetings over it, and it's an alliance of sorts between Japan, the United States, Australia, and India. So it's hard to kind of figure out, what do you make of it, and where is it heading? Uh, much depends on how India chooses uh, to move forward with the Quad. Uh, any public mention of the security dimension of the Quad has the Indians scurrying away. Um, they are, uh, while they recognize that they have an intractable conflict that they are faced with with China, they nevertheless are acutely concerned about peaking China uh, by uh, suggesting that the Quad has a significant security component to it. Any security component to the Quad, they want kept under wraps and they would rather 
talk about supply chains, climate change, um, about uh, 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 um, 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 uh, maritime issues uh, uh, involving uh, uh, freedom of uh, commerce and the like, but they don't want to frontally confront the issue of security in the Quad, at least not in the public domain. So just in closing then, Simit Ganguly, what do you think is the takeaway apart from laying out the red carpet and and all this feel-good stuff? I mean, uh, again, to my mind, Modi is a pretty odd character. I mean, he's he's not married, he's a celibate, and he's, I guess, proud of that. But he's obviously very egotistical and obviously uh, has authoritarian tendencies, to put it politely. Um, uh, I concur with everything uh, that you have said. Uh, The key uh, question is um, uh, what transpires after this meeting is over once uh, the the various uh, military agreements are reached uh, this potential $3 billion sale of drones to India, the Jeev, the possible manufacture of the G414 engine in India, uh, and the like. But the real test of this relationship will come in the weeks and months ahead to see to what degree the U.S. and India can find ways to coordinate their policies, particularly in contentious areas. That, I think, will be the real test of the relationship. Otherwise, I fear this relationship, like most of the relationships that Modi is pursuing with other powers ranging from France to Germany to the United Kingdom to the United States, they all seem to be transactional. And these transactional relationships, I fear, might enable India to tide over immediate issues, but do not address long-term questions of India's growth, India's stability, and above all, India's security. Well, Dr. Simit Ganguly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Folly of India's Neutrality. In the face of Chinese aggression, New Delhi must align with Washington. We can take a brief station break back looking to the extent to which the Supreme Court has been captured by the plutocracy with Justices Thomas and Alito slavishly serving the interests of their billionaire buddies.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Leah Littman, professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the United States Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leah Littman. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Supreme Court has now taken another hit in terms of its credibility. And in this case, ProPublica detailed a 2008 trip that Justice Alito took with the billionaire hedge fund owner Paul Singer, who had business before the court. So Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has been pointing out for some time that there's been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court engineered by Leonard Leo with an enormous amount of dark money from plutocrats. And we know that Leonard Leo got $1.6 billion from just one uh, wealthy individual, which he's now deploying. So it would seem to me that what we've learned about Justice Clarence Thomas's close relationships with billionaires and now Alitos, can you make the conclusion, Leah, that these Supreme Court justices serve their constituents, meaning billionaires, as opposed to the rest of us? I mean, I think this really confirms something that Senator Whitehouse has said about the Supreme Court and the conservative legal movement that has really shaped the court we have today. And that's that part of one of the goals of the legal movement is basically creating a hospitable, welcoming, affirming environment for the justices who rule in ways that are consistent with the conservative legal movement's goals. I mean, Leonard Leo has been reportedly involved in the relationships that ProPublica reported, you know, between here, you know, the hedge fund billionaire and Justice Alito, as well as previously between Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas. You know, he is pictured in the pastoral painting um, at Harlan Crow's Lodge, you know, together with Justice Thomas. And he apparently also organized the fishing trip, you know, between the hedge fund billionaire as well as the plane ride, you know, that the hedge fund billionaire offered um, Justice Alito. And so I think what that really underscores is, you know, they are creating this alternative network that exists to basically pat the justices on the back, you know, when they are ruling in favor of the interests supported by the conservative legal movement and those organizations. Well, didn't Paul Singer have business before the Supreme Court, I believe, involving uh, a dispute with Argentina? Yes. So I think it was initially before the fishing trip. Um, Singer had asked the Supreme Court to review his dispute um, between his hedge fund Arm NML Capital and the government of Argentina. Um, and then he would later ask the Supreme Court to do so again a few times after, you know, the fishing trip and, you know, his continued relationship with Justice Alito that involved introducing the justice um, at a speech um, and perhaps other things as well. And then eventually, you know, after a coordinated public relations campaign that ProPublica describes, um, the hedge fund successfully persuaded the Supreme Court to hear the case. And Justice Alito uh, participated in that case and ultimately voted in favor of Singer's hedge fund. And as a result of that ruling, you know, that helped facilitate um, a resolution between the hedge fund and the government of Argentina that resulted in over $2 billion um, to the hedge fund. Not a bad payday. <laughs> no, that, that's pretty good. So the Wall Street Journal 
printed a preemptive op-ed by Justice Alito, who obviously knew the ProPublica report was coming out. That in itself is pretty extraordinary. And we know that the editorial board of the uh, Wall Street Journal are pretty rabid far right. In fact, they've come out with a statement saying the political assault on the Supreme Court continues and the latest justice in the grinder is Samuel Alito. As usual, this is a non-scandal built on partisan spin intended to harm the justice and the current court majority. Well, isn't it pretty clear that what's harming the Supreme Court's reputation and the current uh, court majority is the enormous amount of scandals that have been revealed. And it doesn't seem to be a political campaign so much as a as a reckoning here about what their priorities are. Yeah, I think that that's completely right. I mean, the public polling indicates that the majority of people believe that the, you know, relationships that have been reported on by ProPublica involving, you know, the gifts of largesse to the Republican appointed justices on behalf of, you know, conservative legal movement um, organizers and, you know, Republican mega donors, um, that they believe that those transactions are inappropriate and create an appearance of bias and, you know, not unreasonably so. And it just so happens, you know, that it has been the Republican appointed justices who have engaged in these sorts of relationships and behaviors. And, you know, they have done so um, in part because, you know, that is one of the things that the conservative legal movement has you know, been structured to do, provide them essentially an alternative friendly um, network of people, you know, to support them and the work that they are doing um, and to reward them, you know, for their continued loyalty and participation in that movement. And so, you know, while it might seem partisan in that it's the Republican appointed justices and the conservative legal movement doing these things, um, it's not you know, partisan or a political campaign. It's just reporting on what these justices have been doing. Well, my understanding is that the justices in these in the federal bench below the Supreme Court are chafing at the fact that they have to abide by ethics rules and the Supreme Court doesn't. And as more and more evidence comes out about the extent to which these justices are in the thrall of billionaires and, and getting all these amazing favors from them and not reporting them, What's your understanding about courts below the Supreme Court? Is it true, these reports that we're hearing, that they're annoyed, to say the least, about this double standard? I mean, I don't have a read or a survey on, you know, all of the lower federal courts and federal judges in the country. Um, It is true that in some recent hearings, you know, you have had, you know, federal judges testifying, you know, and former federal judges that the Supreme Court is badly in need of ethics reform and that the justices should, you know, be bound by a set of rules or guidelines that actually limit their ability to engage in these sorts of transactions that create a very real appearance of impropriety and bias. But in terms of Alito trying to get the jump on this ProPublica story and going to the Wall Street Journal, which is obviously a a friendly outlet to write an op-ed, what does that say about Alito? He he seems to be pretty thin-skinned about criticism. Yeah, I mean, it is, let's say, highly unusual um, for a public official, including a Supreme Court justice, you know, when they are emailed a set of questions um, from a reporter about a story, you know, the reporter is about to run, you know, instead of responding to the questions, directing them to, say, the Supreme Court Public Information Office or just not responding, they instead run off to, you know, a more ideologically friendly 
um, alternative publication and run a preemptive pre-buttal on you know the op-ed pages it's quite remarkable um, and i think very telling about both the extent to which the justices feel you know some real pressure from the plummeting approval ratings of the court um, and also you know are somewhat thin-skinned and it matters to them how people view them well i recall when uh just shortly after Citizens United decision at the joint session of Congress where President Obama was making an address, Obama criticized the recent ruling and said that this ruling will open the floodgates for foreign money to pour into our elections. And we know that's happened from Russia and from Saudi Arabia and others, particularly in the 2016 election that brought Trump to the White House. But at that moment when Obama made this statement to the Joint Session of Congress, uh, the camera cut away to Alito, who mouthed, not true. But it is true. So that leads me to wonder what planet this guy's on. I mean, again, you know, it seems that one of the things that most irritates um, Justice Alito, as well as some of the other justices, is you know, people describing what the court is actually doing. Um, and I think that Justice Alito's Behavior at the State of the Union is just one indication of, you know, how the justices are not above politics um, and that they are, you know, people, even though that they wear robes and, you know, cultivate an appearance that they are, you know, different than other politicians and, you know, meaningfully above the law and above the sort of things that influence other people's decisions. Well, is there any possibility that this kind of pressure can change their minds, do you think? I don't know that there's much chance in terms of Clarence Thomas, and there's certainly no way that he's going to resign as long as there's a Democratic president. I mean, given the fact that the Quinnipiac poll just published on Wednesday found that the Supreme Court's public approval rating has sunk to 30% among registered voters, you would think that would be a message. I mean, maybe the Chief Justice is getting the message, but do you think these others, like Gorsuch and Alito and um, Thomas, could it's get really, the message? It's really hard to be able to measure, you know, the effect of public opinion and public approval or disapproval on the Supreme Court in general or individual Supreme Court justices in particular. I think the fact that the justices have felt compelled to respond, um, you know, to the plummeting approval ratings, as well as two specific stories, you know, does provide some evidence that they think these public stories and public perceptions matter. Um, will they matter to such an extent that they actually influence the justices and how they vote? I think that is very unclear. I think there is a limit to the extent to which, you know, public approval or public opinion could lead the justices to change their positions on certain issues that are very core, you know, to the reasons why the Republican Party nominated these justices to be Supreme Court justices in the first place. Um, and I also think that, you know, having a public opinion or public approval be, you know, the predictor for Supreme Court um, uh, decisions is also not really a sustainable thing. That is, it's hard to imagine public opinion or public attention remain so focused on the court over the next 40 or so years, you know, during which the court may quite possibly remain in Republican hands, that during that entire period, the public will remain so focused on the court that they could actually be affecting Supreme Court decisions over that entire period. But what we've uh, learned so far from public statements by the Chief Justice John Roberts 
are not particularly encouraging. He made a public speech recently and said that the most difficult decision he had to make was whether or not to put barriers around the Supreme Court at the time of the decision on abortion came down. None of these issues that we're talking about seem to be bother him, or at least that wasn't his top priority. His top priority was apparently putting barriers around the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, it was very, I think, interesting that he named that the most difficult decision that he had to make, you know, a decision that affected his workplace and a decision that was, you know, again, pretty um, pointedly about public perception of the Supreme Court. So he's not, in other words, the fact that majority of the public are against the decision and people are very angry about it, that doesn't bother him or the majority. I mean, apparently not to the same extent as putting barriers around the Supreme Court does. Mm -hmm. So what's the answer here then, uh, Leah Littman? Uh, What do you mean as far as an answer? Well, I mean, in other words, if we're tearing our hair out and feeling frustrated, and there's no question that the Republicans have played the long game and they've had their eye on this for a long time, and you've got operatives like Leonard Leo who's who's played an inordinate role in, in in accruing all this dark money and giving Mitch McConnell and the Republican presidents like Trump a list, literally, of justices. And we've seen the quality of some of these federalist justices that they put on the Supreme Court, with the, particularly with the judge now down in Florida, was hearing probably the most important case in recent American history, which is the cases against uh, Donald Trump. And that's just an amazing situation to begin with. And New York Times recently did a pretty extensive uh, report on her background. And normally when justices are up for the federal bench, they submit their legal writings. And in her case, she had no legal articles. All she could submit were a couple of articles from the uh, Miami Herald on flamenco dancing and tomatoes. You know, I think there's no question that things are pretty bleak right now. Um, But I, you know, very firmly believe that the solution is not just to give up because it's going to take a long time to fix a lot of this. Um, I think there are things that can be done. Some of the more immediate things will be at the state and local level to try to counteract some of the more disastrous decisions. Um, And then there are more, you know, longer term solutions that involve, you know, getting more people to think about, you know, what Republicans have done to the courts and getting more people to understand that there need to be bigger structural solutions to what the federal courts look like in order to fix those things. But just on the state and local solutions, you know, to name a few, you know, last year, the Supreme Court decided to case Shin versus Ramirez, in which it concluded that, you know, it's illegal for a federal court to consider evidence that someone is innocent, even if that evidence of their innocence had never been presented before because the state had appointed them an ineffective lawyer. And what the Supreme Court said is, look, even though two federal courts, four federal judges have concluded that this person who was sentenced to death is probably innocent of the crime that they were convicted of, the state of Arizona can execute him anyways. Um, Voters turned out in the midterm elections in 2022, and the Democratic candidate for attorney general won the race by less than 300 votes. And as a result, you know, her office um, negotiated an agreement with the person um, who's very likely innocent of the crime that they were on death row for almost 30 years and negotiated right his release. So he is now a free person, um, you know, almost one year, more than a year after the Supreme Court decision in, in his case. So state and local elections focusing on those, you know, can mitigate some of the effects of 
these decisions. Um, but there's no question that people also need to be investing in longer term solutions um, and changing people's minds about, you know, more structural solutions to the Supreme Court. And just in closing, the most obvious would be to uh, expand the number of justices, wouldn't it? Yes, I think that that is certainly part of it, um, although that would not um, address the situation that results from, you know, the other branches of government also not being representative. You know, the Electoral College, um, which selects the president, as well as the Senate apportionment scheme, both you know, stack the deck in favor of Republican associated interests. And so I think merely adding seats to the Supreme Court, while, you know, that could stem the tide of some of these disastrous decisions, is unlikely to prevent the situation we are finding ourselves in, where Republicans have basically seized control of institutions despite not having popular support. It's not going to prevent that from happening again. Well, Leah Littman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Leah Littman, who's a professor of law at the University of Michigan, who teaches and writes on constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing. She clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the Supreme Court and is now a regular contributor to the Take Care blog and the co-host and creator of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. We can take a brief station break. We look into the surprising and encouraging findings from a new study on homelessness in California. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Margot Cushell, who's a professor of medicine and division chief at the Division of Vulnerable Populations at Zuckerberg's San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, and director of the University of California Center for Vulnerable Populations and University of California San Francisco Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. And she is the principal author of their new report, the California Statewide Study of People Experiencing Homelessness. Welcome to Background Briefing, Margot Cushell. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And this report that you've just given to the public and presumably to state leaders and, and national leaders for that matter, I think is a major breakthrough in terms of so many of the assumptions about homelessness seem to be so wrong. And the idea that your study found that addiction and mental health conditions rarely cause homelessness and that losing income is the number one reason that Californians end up homeless. And the vast majority of them apparently have told you that a subsidy as little as $300 a month could have kept them off the streets. So this is, an, I think, both shocking, amazing, but also hopeful in a way, is it not? I do think it's hopeful. I think that, you know, we've been thinking for a while, how do we solve this problem? And I think the solution is right here in front of us. People who are homeless need housing. They want housing. Some might need some support to stay in that housing, but mostly they just need housing that they can afford. 
Well, there was a, a surplus, was there not? And I think, wasn't there a big uh, middle class payback by the state of California? For some reason or other, <laughs> I did, never cashed mine in. I thought it was a scam. <laughs> but I think everybody got some, in, in the state of California got, what, $800 or something? So it's not like the state of California doesn't have a little bit of a, some cash floating around, right? I think it's very hard for states on their own to solve this problem of deeply affordable housing. I think the state has been making some progress. Just for perspective, we currently have only 24 units of housing that are affordable and available for every 100 extremely low-income housing. We, have, we are 1 million units short of where we need to be for the 1.3 million extremely low-income households in California. As dismal as that is, we've actually been making progress. Just a few years ago, we were at 21, and we've crept up to 24 with a lot of the state's initiatives. I actually think it's going to be hard to solve this without having more federal dollars. Um, the you know California tax income swings wildly. We have really good years. We have really bad years, and they have to balance their budget. It makes it hard for California to do sometimes the ongoing subsidies that are needed. Traditionally, that has been the role of the federal government. But I think a lot of the money that the public feels like we seem to be spending in California on homelessness is money that is spent on the crisis itself, but not money that's necessarily being spent on the difficult, difficult work of creating this housing, of preserving this housing. We are deeply, deeply short of where we need to be. And the homelessness crisis is not just the 170,000 people who sleep in our streets and in shelters every night, but it's the million households that are on the verge of homelessness that we really need to attend to as well. But I take it that what you discovered here is, and what you're pointing out is that one-time grants from the state of California that are doled out, like as I was mentioning, the, the middle-class uh, rebate, uh, but in this case for homeless people, that doesn't solve the problem in any lasting sense. But meanwhile, Governor Newsom apparently has allocated nearly $21 billion towards homelessness and housing since he took office. So where has that money gone and how is it being spent? I think that that money has been spent to stave off an even worse crisis. I think, again, we've made slow but steady progress in this, in this key indicator. We've gone from 21 to 24. I'd like to see that number continue to go up. So some of that money has been spent to bring that number from 21 to 24. But homelessness is incredibly costly. It's most costly, of course, to the people who experience it, who pay for it with their lives with their health, with their safety. But frankly, it's costly to everybody. It just costs a lot of money to manage this crisis. And it's why our plea is to really look towards the root causes, get away from some of the rhetoric, get to the true solutions that are going to be durable so that we don't have to continually pay these ongoing costs. And instead, we can pay, you know, we can pay for real solutions. So would you mind listing a couple of those 
root causes and, and how they could be solved. I mean, one of the people that you interviewed, and you interviewed 3,198 unhoused adults throughout California between October of 2021 and November of 2022, is Carlos, who had to stop working after falling off a ladder and injuring his spine, but wasn't eligible for workers' compensation because he had been paid in cash and unable to afford his rent. He moved out of his apartment and rented a room in a new place, but soon he left due to conflicts with his roommates, then briefly lived with his sister's family until they faced COVID-related job losses, and he moved out to avoid becoming a burden. He lived in a truck for a while until it was towed due to unpaid parking tickets, and now he lives in a homeless encampment in a park. So that's a sort of window into a lot of stories like that, right? It's exactly falling. People just falling. We we have come to think about it as the personal doom loop. One of the things that really took us, perhaps by surprise, was 20% of the people who entered homelessness came straight from an institution. Of the other 81%, it was 19% of the other 81%, 60% came from what's called a doubled up or non-leaseholding situation. They were just trying to hold on by staying with friends or family. 40% came directly from a place they had rented or less commonly owned. But what we heard from everybody was this sort of slow slide down, like we tried to capture in Carl's story. One thing led to another, led to another, and at each time that, that their housing got worse, that their options got worse, their ability to make money went down. So the median income now amongst everyone is $400 because what we heard time and time again was that people fell behind in their rent. They lost housing. Maybe it took a year or two to sort of slide into homelessness. But once they were homeless, their income went down further. They experienced violence or victimization. Their mental health declined. Their physical health declined. Everything went sideways. And then it was much harder to climb back out. So I think what we're really pleading for is getting to the real causes so that we can stop that slide early so that the Carloses don't have to go through all of that, because it's frankly going to be much more costly to get people out of it than it would be to stop it from happening in the first place. And another myth that your study explodes, Dr. Cushell, is that the idea that homeless people flock to California cities because of the warm yeah. weather and liberal policies and general services. In reality, 90% of the people surveyed said they will live in California. That's where they were last housed. And many have been living here, you know, all their lives. So people who are homeless are our neighbors. They are our neighbors. A higher proportion of people in our study were born in California than the overall California population. These were people with deep, deep roots. These are people who had been there. They were experiencing homelessness for the most part in the same county where they had lived for a long time. I think it's really important to not play to these myths for a lot of reasons, but one is they're not going to get us to a solution. California has the highest housing costs in the country. It is actually a terrible place to live if you're in poverty um, or experiencing homelessness, it's not that people are flocking to us. These are Californians who have really are just struggling against a really brutal housing market. Well, you've got the governors of Texas and Florida putting 
people on buses, in this case migrants, and sending them to California to punish us for being too generous and compassionate. I mean, I think that's a little bit of political theater, right. um, but that's not what this crisis is about. No, no, but it certainly shows you that there's a politicization of this issue. And Oh, yeah, and absolutely. Just in the last couple of minutes, and what are you hoping that the political authorities will take from your study? Because it is, again, quite a wake-up that so little money, $300 a month, could make such a difference to the lives of these people. And clearly there's money being spent and there's more money that should be spent on affordable housing. Yeah, I mean, we need to double down on on housing. And I'm really hoping that it's a wake-up call for both the state and federal government to treat the housing crisis with the urgency that it needs. We hope that that will get their attention. We hope that we'll double down on prevention, that we'll find people before they become homeless and try to stop that slide because it's going to be worth everybody's while to do that. And we hope we'll be able to marshal our resources to provide people the supports that they need to really thrive. We really think that this crisis is devastating to the people experiencing it, but it's also having a negative effect on our beautiful state. And we really hope that we can get to real solutions away from some of the rhetoric, lean into the evidence and do what we need to do. Well, Dr. Margaret Cashel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Margot Cashel, who is a professor of medicine, division chief at the Division of Vulnerable Populations at Zuckerberg's San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, and director of the University of California Center for Vulnerable Populations and University of California San Francisco Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. And she's the principal author of their new report, The Californian Statewide Study of People Experiencing Homelessness. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone
one more light goes out in 